So earlier this week, we spoke to BC Liberal MLA Lauren Dirksen from the Caribou. He's been uh, frustrated about BC's wildfire response this year, and he had some ideas about how to improve it. Uh, we're encouraging uh, the government to consider a cross-ministry working group, which will tie all the ministries that are involved together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a lot of reasons to have that. It's not just before the fires or during the fires, but it's certainly after the fires as well. You know, there's much damage done mm-hmm. uh, in rural areas of this province, including uh, infrastructure, fencing. Uh, you know, all those things need to be replaced, and they need to be replaced quickly. You know, we, we need to be working on things like that now. So we need our, our uh, ministries to be working together, mm-hmm. and we need to be have them working together proactively, not after the fact. I mean, we know that right now we could be doing fencing in areas that have burned, and we could be doing that now, not waiting till the spring to do things like mm-hmm. that. Uh, we need to come up with a plan for communities like Lytton. I mean, my gosh, we, we were this has been now weeks that this has occurred. And to my knowledge, there's no... Uh, uh, collective working plan uh, to move forward in a community like Lytton. And I know that communities like Monty Creek, et cetera, mm-hmm. are going to have those same sort of questions right now that they're wrestling with. And I mm-hmm. think we have to do that. And I, I think we really need to look at, we, we have to sit down together with all the groups and, and the people that have been affected by wildfire and really listen to what has happened because I I really fear that's the biggest problem. Uh, We saw some of these problems in 2017. You're so right. I I wasn't an MLA at that time. But I saw them as a resident. And a lot of these things, George, Mm -hmm. have not changed. That was uh, BC Liberal MLA Lauren Dirksen. We put in request to the minister responsible, NDP uh, uh, Minister Mike Farnworth, but he declined to speak with us today. On the line with us now, though, is to help us navigate some of the ideas Lauren brought up uh, and provided us is Rob Schweitzer, Director of Wildfire Operations at BC Wildfire Service. Hi, Rob. Uh, Good afternoon, George. Thanks for joining me. So before I get to some of his ideas, some of uh, Mr. Dirksen's ideas, I just want to ask you you how how you think this summer is going uh, on, on the ground there. Yeah, so um, so this season was certainly a challenge, and there's and there's uh, there's no doubt about that. Um, we are seeing uh, forced conditions um, because of climate change, uh, the pest and disease in the forest, and it's not unique just to BC. It's it's, uh, it's conditions that are being seen all across Western North America. You combine that with urban sprawl, uh, and really our our fire suppression uh, policy or tactics for the last 60, 80 years. And we, we see that buildup of fuel. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we're seeing fire behavior conditions that we've never seen before. Conditions like pyrocumulonimbus um, meteorological, meteorological um, situations that actually spark its own weather in some of our, in some of our hmm. fire situations. Right. So it's certainly a challenge. So when we hear, uh, you know, when you look at the successes and, and what maybe didn't work across this province this summer, what worked when, we, when these fires got going and Lytton being the extreme of what, how horrible it can get? Where, where, where are some of the successes and where are the things you could uh, you see, see, have seen improvement? Yeah, so first off, I, I just want to um, send my acknowledgement to, to all those British Columbians, that, British Columbians that have been impacted this summer directly. Uh, you know, through a loss of a home or an impact to their business, but all the people that were on orders and alerts, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it certainly has an impact to people's uh, psyche and mental health, and uh, it's something that also affects the firefighters as well. 
But coming out of 2017, um, you know, the Abbott Chapman report put together 108 recommendations and, and 92% of those have been adopted. Um, and, and some of the things that we saw as a program this year that worked well is the work that we've done around research and innovation, u- utilizing satellite, satellite technology and, and other uh, tools to help improve our predictive services unit that we stood up. So mm-hmm. we were able to um, forecast some of those major events that we saw coming this year, warn the public, um, um, preposition crews and resources ahead of some of these uh, some of these big fires. But you can't obviously cover every piece of the province. Um, and Lytton, unfortunately, is an example where it was the perfect storm, a 50-degree day, high winds, and, uh, and, and that spark that just ignited and, and devastated that community. Mm-hmm. The obviously two thousand, you know, twenty seventeen. We had that. You had the, you know, you came up with some a list of things to do. You say ninety percent is done, but we are where we are. So what's missing? And and uh, Mr. Dirksen talked about a working group and like a nonpartisan cross party. Every department, ministry, all the ministries that cross over forestry, all of them, and getting together and putting a plan together. Is that something that you think is needed? Well, I think I think it's already happening within government, and and what I would also uh, like to highlight is actually from coming out of 2017, and we and we and we demonstrated it this year, where we worked more closely than ever with our external partners, the forest industry, essentially down-tooled this summer from their logging operations, and over 300 contractors from that business and those major forest companies and independent contractors joined us in the wildfire fight. The BC Cattlemen Association, for the first time ever, we entered into partnership agreements with them. Same thing with First Nation communities. Now, could there be improvements? Absolutely there could be, but um, that is a significant shift in the way we've done things from 2017, where we involve those provincial stakeholders and agencies to actually embed them into our incidents and into our fire situations with local knowledge, local um, contacts to build a feed our decision makers on the ground in what they do. But the reality is, is we're Mm -hmm. still seeing conditions out there that are more in line with uh, a natural disaster, like an avalanche Mm -hmm. or an earthquake. And we're having more and more difficulty to be able to stop those or suppress those situations, just like we can't other natural disasters. So it's incumbent upon all of us to be as prepared as possible, do those mitigation treatments. And then when it comes to response, uh, follow the orders of evacuation orders and alerts, and certainly lean on our partner agencies to do the best in the protecting the um, province of British Columbia. Mitigations is the key there to me. You know, the fires themselves and not knowing, you know, they're unpredictable to a certain degree. We, we, you can't budget for them. There's a small budget, but we always, some years we go over budget, sometimes we go under budget. But what we heard from several, uh, you know, I spoke to the chief of, uh, the fire chief in, in uh, Logan Lake. Um, we spoke to s- several other people across the, the province. And they talk a lot about predictable funding for mitigation. So in the case of Logan Lake, they proved this year uh, that their mitigation policies and their award-winning for some of the stuff they've done in, 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 in Logan Lake, as you know, um, worked really well. Yet there's, the process is not predictable. There are grants you have to apply for to get the money. There's, you know, each, state, each city gets a different amount. You know, there's, some are more sophisticated than others. Some are more aggressive than others about getting the money. Um, it's very unpredictable, and, and especially the funding and the tasks that these communities need to perhaps fulfill in order to, mit- to mitigate the fires. Why can't we get the province to create a more 
sustainable process and, and, and a budgeted process that communities like Logan Lake can have a predictable process in order to mitigate the damage that gets done like we saw in Lytton. Yeah, and, you know, and, and you bring up two points. You bring up capacity and then funding. Uh, I would I would argue that actually we have seen that sustainable funding model coming out of 2018 with the Community Resiliency Investment Fund. Um, 130 over 130 million dollars have been uh, invested in the province around fuel mitigation, and we need to continue that. That is that is just a start, and it's acknowledged that it's a start, but. The, the point around the, the um, capacity piece is a challenge. We have large communities, and then we have those smaller uh, regional districts mm-hmm. or communities that may not have that capacity. We at Wildfire and, and uh, the rest of the ministry that, that I work for, Forest Lands, Natural Resource Operations, and Rural Development, um, try to work very closely with their local communities to assist them in building that capacity and actually um, obtaining these grants and these funding grants and actually implementing the, the work on the ground. As you mentioned, George, Logan Lake is an excellent example. Um, the work that they've done for over 15 years allowed our firefighters and the structural protection specialists that were there to steer that fire away from the community. There was defendable spaces mm-hmm. and an ability to protect the, that community, not to stop the wildfire, but to steer it away from the community. And so we do need to continue to model that way and actually enhance it as much as possible. And as fast as possible, I would say. Well, Rob, thanks for, for joining me today, and I appreciate uh, your time. Okay, thank you, George. Welcome back. Welcome back, George Affleck. In for Jill Bennett and uh, Eric Chapman, our show contributor is a tr- contributor is joining me now. Eric. Hey, George, what's up? I, I got to be careful. All the things I say because you're going to put some moment of zen at the end of the show. And I'm just well, trying I know, to figure but- out what will it be this day? I have two potentials already, so oh, you can no. just you can sit there and stew in it for a while. See if I pull them for <laughs> later. But yeah, you've been asking this the whole way. I know, the whole way through the show. Well, there's here, no information. I, think, I have no information. I don't know what. Well, this read is. the article. Read the. I put the article. You can't. Read. I listen to the radio. <laughs> you keep asking though. Would would you swim in other people's pool? But I yeah. think the question is. Would you let someone else swim in your pool? And I, and, I, and I ask this, George, because there's been many studies, not infants, not children, but full-grown adults. Yes. 40% of them go in the pool. Well, and you know that you know the look when you see it yeah. happening. <laughs> Mostly do. on the beach, you see those dudes and they walk out and then and suddenly their arms are kind of raised <laughs> and they're just yeah. kind of looking into the distance. And and looking, you're like, yes. you are doing it <laughs> right now. You're going to the bathroom, right? Yep. Because you can't swim and do it at the same time. That's, I don't think that's – is it? I don't even know, actually. I would never do that. Okay, hold on. You just blew my mind. I don't know if that's possible. But I know someone that works on the radio in Vancouver on a, on a primetime drive show that admittedly pees in the pool and tells <sighs> their children to as well. No. But anyways, yes, the reason I'm bringing this up is <sighs> there's a new app, and it's called Swimply. <laughs> Swimply? Yes. And you can basically re- – it's like an Airbnb for your pool. So you can rent out <laughs> okay, yeah. your pool, mm-hmm. and now it's in. Um, now you can get it in the Tri Cities in Port Moody, and, and, and here's an example: uh, Port Moody heated in ground oasis, seventy five dollars an hour, ten guests, mm-hmm. lounge chairs, umbrellas, a shower, wireless internet, and music speaker. So you can Sweet. rent it hourly for seventy five bucks. I like so it. So it's like it's, you, you you're into this. You'd go and swim in other people's pools. Yeah, well, you know, chlorine's pretty good. I mean, it kind of kills if it's a chlorine pool. I mean, I, I don't know. I assume yeah. people pee in pools, and so I don't really think about it. But if you think about <laughs> it too no- much, it'll drive you uh, crazy. I wouldn't even go to that extreme. 
I don't know. I've always wanted to because I grew up very poor with not a whole lot. And like, even if I got a stick, I'd be like, yes, this is a good day. I'm playing all day long. So people with <laughs> pools was always like this other world for me. But so I've always wanted to be in a pool. But I just I don't know if I'm comfortable swimming in random people's pools. Are they putting the right amount of chlorine in it? Well, they have to. I mean, you know, well, are you sure? Trouble. How do you know? How I, do you know? I'll tell you. How do you know, George? I, I'll tell you what I think is worse <laughs> in my mind if is pillows, people other people's pillows. That to me is disgusting. I don't want to. You know no. how many heads have been on a pillow? I don't know how many people I bought, sweat on a pillow. That's, I bring even even in hotels. I bring a pillowcase because I don't like pillows. Like I bring like a plastic lined. So you're a bit of a germ freak. Oh, I'm a huge germ freak. This is my problem with this pool thing. Even though you can get a great pool for forty five bucks an hour, it's like. Oh, and who do you want? Do you want people coming in your? I don't know. It just yeah, I'm thinking if I was weird. 19 and I rented a pool for 45 bucks an hour, that pool would be, well, there would be everything would be in that pool. <laughs> it sounds like, you know, there would be a right? party happening at that pool. And there, there is questions about like uh, liability and stuff, but there's been some personal injury lawyers. This is from the Tri Cities News. Uh, they're reporting it. Mm-hmm. There's a million dollar liability and things like that. So you're, you're covered for injury. That's not really, but the issue. But apparently. You can make bank. Where did that go? Yeah, ev- um, plenty of hosts, mm-hmm. no problem making $100,000 for a season. What? Yep. No. Yep, there's an example out of, uh, they won't say what town it is, but um, this person who rents out their pool, they're making around 100000 They can do ten grand a week. Or wait, uh, uh, ten grand since early June she has made. So June, July, well, how many months yeah, is that? What month is it? August, two months. 30, t- 10 hours in a day, that's 450 bucks. Yeah. Right, five days a week. That's uh, two thousand bucks a week. <laughs> I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Three, two thousand bucks a week, full time. But then you have right? to pay off your neighbors because you're probably driving them crazy with all these people in your. Well, pool. again, yeah, but there's something like 500 listings in Canada yeah. from Swimply, this app that swimming. Because I've used the there's a car one. You know, these uh, there's lots of apps that I use when I travel, especially. Um, obviously, the, the, like what, like well, Uber. Yeah, well, Uber, of course, but there's the one that's, oh, God, now Amanda's going to get mad at me again. Remember yesterday when we forgot? <laughs> yes, I love friend? this. I'm going to get Amanda, a text give, now. Give him crap. <laughs> it's, it's the one where you rent people's used cars, and, they, and they're like, and you can borrow their cars. So I was in Florida, and I borrowed a minivan, and it was like, you know, 10 years old, and, and I'm trying to find it. But it, and it, and it was great because it was uh, 40 bucks a day or something. Is it two-row? Yes, thank you. See, yeah, you're welcome. See, Amanda, we don't need you. <laughs> Eric and <laughs> no, I we, have got this covered. No. No, Amanda, we need you. We love you, and we <laughs> cherish you, all of you, all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I guess okay. So there's there's a good okay. There uh, maybe if I'm on holiday and I'm with a group of people and it's like a once in a while thing, I might I might dip my toe in because that to your point, if you're traveling, you know, and you you, you drive by this awesome pool, and you're like, I want to go swimming, but I don't want to go here. I want it more private. Mm-hmm. Then yeah, I guess I guess okay, you're kind of convincing me there with that one. Most people, though, I mean, I'm a parent, and pools are key as a parent. You, you you can't choose a hotel if there's not a pool. The kids, really, they they don't they don't buy into. If you're, hey, we're going to Seattle. Oh yeah, yeah. Is there a pool in the hotel? Uh, let me check. Uh, and if they're like, oh Seattle, oh, as long as there's a pool in the hotel, they're good to go. And and so wow. you know, and I remember growing up, we would go to. We didn't have a pool, so we would we. My parents befriended anybody who had a pool. So all it's like, okay, that guy's got a pool. And this guy's got, and a neighbor of my friend Duncan, the neighbor had a pool to climb over the fence to swim in that pool, no charge. And they didn't know. We were just kind of like, mm-hmm. really? And, and oh, so like, you've done that? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, well, you I know, about the Langley, So, you know, there's lots of oh, pools. Oh, well, okay. Yeah, there's lots of pools there. Um, I, I'm similar with people. I've always wanted a friend with a boat. 
and I recently made a friend with a boat. Yeah, awesome. we're gonna go boating. That's gonna be awesome. So that's the, yeah, that's an investment. That's something I would never. No thanks. And, no and, and no and and also you have to pilot them. You got to drive those things. And I'm like, God, this is boring. <laughs> oh like, no, it's the great. Oh, you got to get out and drive a boat, George. It's so much fun. Uh, I don't have I, ADHD hits in. I'm like <laughs> boring. <laughs> I, I'm looking to the left. I'm like, where, where where is this? What this is all about? How fast can we go? I guess we can't go fast. Well, I guess yeah. Speedboats maybe and water skiing. Okay, I'm in. But, okay, what uh, about tubing? Tubing? Yeah, tubing. Sure. I'm Behind getting a little boat, bit yeah. old for that. The last time I did it, I wrecked my arm. I wiped out. But <laughs> that is old. that's no, an old I'm getting old. Thing, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, damn you, well, tubing. Uh. Let's hear from. Our, let's get our listeners to call our buzz line because I think that's important to get their opinion and see if they agree with you or me and and uh, maybe admit admit to being in the pool. Yeah. Oh no, sorry. Oh, no. <laughs> so rude. George Affleck in for Jill Bennett today, and uh, it's two. It's one o'clock, and we have a full hour here. I teased before the break that we would be talking about taxes with Chris Sims. Uh, now we're actually talking about that after the one thirty news. So stay tuned for that, and we'll talk a bit about the election campaign and all the tax announcements. Some of them have been focused on corporate taxations and cor- and uh, the C suites and banks, and so we're going to find out more about that and what impact that might have on you and me. But first, some of you may have thought, uh, you know, that uh, the data. Is coming in that showing that that we kind of like this uh, concept of the uh, vaccine passport, or also known as the BC vaccine card. With more of this uh, data and why we can, he can prove that we do kind of like it is Mario Canseco, president of Research Co, and he's done the research. Hey, Mario. Hey, George. Great to be here with you. Yes, thanks for joining me. Okay, break down the numbers. It seems like this was a good idea for the province to go forward with. Well, we asked about it at first uh, back in March uh, when we still had the uncertainty of what was going to be happening with the vaccination rollout. Mm-hmm. And at the time, we had majorities of BC residents who were in favor of the concept. When we re-asked again earlier this month, the level has uh, certainly grown. We have 67% who say it's a good idea to have the vaccine passport to go to live sporting events. 63% who say it's good to have that for a gym. Mm-hmm. A majority essentially for all of the activities we tested. So it's quite interesting to look at how, even though it's been criticized and there's certainly uh, a lot of commentary on social media saying that this is an invasion, uh, we see the level of support for the concept growing as the time goes by. And I think you see the numbers when you had thousands of new people signing up to get their vaccine because of it. It shows that it also worked as it was intended to get people vaccinated. Well, we saw the same situation happening in Quebec when they announced that they were moving into the vaccine passport. Uh, Also, we saw that in Manitoba, which was the earliest jurisdiction to deal with this matter back in June. Mm -hmm. And we can see the results down the road. Manitoba essentially said, look, we're heading into this new world where you're going to have to get vaccinated and have this identification. And you can see the difference uh, in the CFL games. Uh, The Winnipeg Mm -hmm. Blue Bombers played in front of almost 30,000 people, zero COVID cases, everybody double vaccinated. Here we have the Lions and the Whitecaps playing to half-empty houses. Right, because we don't have the vaccine card yet. So that's another, it's another couple of weeks away and really another couple of months away before we have the full double-dose vaccine card. But, you know, we're heading in the right direction. I think these kind of polling numbers obviously help anybody who might, any you know, governments who are apprehensive when they see that people seem to be totally cool with them. Well, and it's definitely something that is uh, consistent across the board. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no specific region where you have people saying, no, I'm not going to be doing this. We don't have the breakdowns that you usually have on something that is political. It's not as if the NDP voter is against it and the BC Liberal voter is in favor of it. And, you know, this is a number that definitely makes sense when you factor in 
how long the pandemic has been and, and the fact that this is going to take a little bit longer. You know, we had a moment before the Delta variant where we expected that things were going to be a little bit easier. Now we might have to live with the vaccine passport for a little bit longer than we expected. But again, we have a majority of residents who say, if this is going to keep us safe, I'm all for it. What about the people that don't? Because it's not 100 percent. It's, you know, it's only at 60 plus percent. So what indications do you have of why they don't support it? Well, I think it's a combination of factors. You know, part of what we see here is uh, the level of support uh, being highest with the over 55 crowd. And Mm -hmm. it's essential to figure out why this happens. You know, they were the first ones to get vaccinated. They were the first ones who got their second shot. I think there's a sense of uh, of, uh, community uh, when it comes to the over 55s. Uh, And you have a a higher level of resistance in a way from millennials, but it's not particularly great. You know, for something Mm. as basic as traveling to another province, uh, you have 28 percent of millennials who say, I don't think I need a passport. It's a higher number than what we see for the other groups, but it's still relatively small. And, you know, part of the problem here has to do uh, with the fact that people might look at this as something that is invasive and intrusive. Um, if that were the case, then the, bo- the blue bombers play in front of 10,000 and not 30,000. You know, people believe that this is the right course of action. I wonder if this will also, the kind of polling that you're seeing on this, because a, a lot of people are asking this week, but well, what about mandatory vaccinations? You know, you have it for the seniors' um, long-term care facilities. Why not for schools? Why not? And we see some private sector people, you know, the airlines are talking about it. But most private sector can't do it. They're waiting for the province to take the lead. If the polling comes in like this for that, then you might see that move towards mandatory vaccinations in certain facilities, don't you think? I think we might have to do that. You know, part of the reason for this is nobody wants to be the first one to say that this is the the best course of action. Mm -hmm. You know, in a way, announcements like the one we had yesterday place the onus on the establishments themselves. You know, make sure that people who are... Uh, double vaccinated come through it's your decision you are going to decide who do you allow in your restaurant and you have the reaction which is you know i'm going to open the restaurant for whoever wants to show up you you essentially place the onus on the businesses themselves and it becomes a little bit less of a hassle both for the federal government and the bc government to say you know this is something that we're mandating it allows them to say we're not forcing you to do this the market is the one forcing you to do this Interesting. There was some interesting stuff, the data that you had, which was surprising about how people are still very apprehensive of going to certain things like to barbers and to, you know, getting on the bus. Obviously, this impacts income for barbers and, you know, even without because without the without the passport, they just don't go to these places because they're worried. Well, and this I think this definitely plays a role in the way people feel about specific activities right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you only have 37 percent who say I'm willing to ride on the bus right now because, you know, we were asking this at a time when the mass mandate wasn't really happening again. Right. Uh, 54 percent who say I'm willing to go to the barber shop. You know, this means 46 percent of people are saying I'm not comfortable in this setting. And, you know, it would be a little bit easier to feel comfortable about attending these places if you had a vaccine passport or if you had a mask mandate. When we were asking British Columbians about this, we still had regulations that were all over the place. So Mm -hmm. this is also essential for economic recovery. It makes no sense to reopen everything if you have 70% of people saying, I don't want to go to your venue. Yeah, because one of the groups that came out somewhat against the passport idea once it was announced was the restaurant industry because it's so complicated. They said, how do we ask? And, you know, where, you know, our staffing and you know, checking people when they come in, it slows the process down. We're just getting back to profitability. But in your data, it shows that 56% of people don't want to go inside. 
Yes, and it's quite interesting because we do see a higher level of support for the patio. The idea that, okay, if I'm outside, it'll be great. Sure. Summer's running out, and October is not the best time to be on a patio in Yaletown, as we know. So, you know, there's definitely a sense of dismay from the industry because mm-hmm. they want to have a, 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 some sort of regulation that makes sense because we can't apply summer rules in the fall or the winter. Interesting. What polls are you doing right now? What, what kind of things can we expect in the next few weeks? Obviously, with this being announced and the masks coming back and the fact that we talked about, um, you know, mandated vaccinations, what kind of polls can we expect in the next few weeks from you, Mario? Because we always love these polls. Well, we have this federal election happening mm-hmm. at this yes. point, so we're going to be looking into that in the next few days. Uh, from a BC-wide standpoint, I think there's definitely a lot to learn from other jurisdictions. You know, mm-hmm. I'm interested in how the people react to this. Are they starting to get a little bit tired of the mixed messaging coming from the government, especially mm-hmm. when we have the opportunity to compare BC with other jurisdictions? We used to do better than Quebec, better than Manitoba, better than Alberta. At this stage, we're arriving late to the vaccine passport party, and mm-hmm. British Columbians will notice. And I think that question of confusion is definitely something that's out there. We hear a lot of that. So we'll be following that. And I appreciate you being with me today, Mario. My pleasure, George. Anytime. Welcome back. George Affleck in for Jill Bennett. I always encourage you to call our buzz line throughout the show, 604-331-2899, 604-331-2899. Or you can email me, George at CKNW. You can follow me on Twitter if you're interested, George underscore. That's a little line in the bottom. Affleck, that's my Twitter handle, and feel free to do that. I always love to chat on uh, old Twitter. So uh, the federal election seems to be about a lot of election, a lot of promises related to taxes, and it seems like increasing taxes for the most part. That never sits well with my next guest. Chris Sims is the BC Director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Hey, Chris, how's it going? Great. Thanks for having us. Yes, no problem. So there's a lot of taxes that are being announced, flipping taxes, corporate taxes, big bank taxes, daycare for taxes, lower taxes. They're all over the place with the taxes. Does this concern you? Obviously, it does. Yeah, it definitely does. And uh, what's interesting is it usually is a really hard sell uh, for people if a politician says, hey, if I'm elected, I'm going to raise your taxes. Mm-hmm. But it's usually on stuff like uh, sales taxes, so something like the GST or income taxes. If they come out saying, I'm going to jack up those taxes, people mm-hmm. pay attention. But if they do it in kind of a backdoor sort of way by jacking up taxes, say, on banks or big corporations or something, then the average person usually doesn't kick up a fuss. Our issue with that is, uh, do we really think that those big corporations and big banks are just going to eat that? Or are they going to potentially pass it along to the little guy, Mm -hmm. you and me and average Canadians? And so that's a really important question. If a politician is coming to your door, either virtually or in person, and they're talking about, you know, soaking the rich or wealth taxes or Mm -hmm. bank taxes, ask them. Ask them, how does this affect me? Don't you think that that bank or that corporation is going to come after me to make up the difference? And so, yeah, there's a lot of concern here. And the flipping tax is really interesting. Mm-hmm. And I don't know yet, I haven't heard in the last hour or so, I don't know yet if that, if that applies to primary residences. Because right now, you already pay a capital gains tax if it's a secondary residence. Right. So if you live in your house, and then you also have your business or whatever it is, that's how you make your, your income, flipping homes, 
while you're staying in your same house, you already pay taxes on that. So this uh, proposal coming from the Liberals right now looks like it's on your primary house. And our concern there is that that opens the door to a capital gains tax on the sale of your primary home. Which for a lot of Canadians, their primary home is their retirement plan. So that's a tax on your retirement for the most part. Yes, absolutely. So on one end of the scale, we have folks who are nearing retirement Mm -hmm. or they're senior citizens even. They're banking, and I mean bank on selling that home. It's their huge nest egg. It's their pride and joy. And mm-hmm. then they downsize. They mm-hmm. live small. Uh, they move somewhere else. Sure. And quite often, they'll use that money to literally pay for food, like to heat and eat. Mm-hmm. They need that money. And then they also will sometimes take a chunk of that, depending on how much money they made on the sale, and give it to their Gen X kids or their millennial mm-hmm. grandkids. The transfer so of they, wealth. Yeah. There you go. And passing it along. And so that way, that next generation can maybe hopefully afford a down payment on a home, uh, as unlikely as unfortunately that seems to be nowadays, especially in the Vancouver well, area. That's yeah. a whole other topic for sure for this yeah. campaign. But, the you know, people love the tax on the man, you know, tax the bank. That's good. Like, let's sure. get, get, get the man. Um, but, you know, then we also have a challenge because in the last year and a half, this government in federally and each provincial government has spent a lot of money to get us through this COVID nightmare. Uh, you know, we've got to find money somewhere. So you mentioned earlier GST or, you know, you know, sales taxes, mm-hmm. I, I'm going to bet those are going to go up after this election. If you get some majority, I would say for sure, you'll see a 1% hike on GST, don't you think? Yeah, anything like that is possible. And we need to keep in mind that what politicians are saying, we don't care what party it is, what politicians mm-hmm. are saying during the campaign uh, could likely change at the drop of a hat the moment the election's over. Remember last time around, uh, Catherine McKenna, when she was environment minister, said, oh no, they've got no plans whatsoever to jack the carbon tax up past $50 mm-hmm. a ton. No, it's going to stay there. <laughs> Mm -hmm. The the ink wasn't dry, and they jacked it up to $170 a ton. And so no matter what they're saying during the campaign, uh, we should brace ourselves for worse afterwards. Our issue here is that Ottawa has a spending problem. They are spending so much money, it should make people's eyes water. They're spending over $400 million a day. And for folks who are speaking up and yelling at the radio in the car, saying, (laughs) oh, what about COVID? Well, in 2018... So no no COVID, mm-hmm. no tsunami was hitting us, thank goodness, no emergency. They spent more in that one year than in any one year of the Second World War or the Korean War. Prorated, the obviously. Yeah. Yeah. And it's all, of course, prorated mm-hmm. and adjusted. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've got a serious spending problem. They need to rein that in before they start sniffing around for more taxes. Well, you've been asking for that for years, and I don't see that happening. And how popular, I mean, we've had this tax and spend mentality. People seem to be pretty cool with increasing taxes, more than I ever remember, um, that they're open to paying more or accepting government being more, you know, spendthrifty than they previously were. I, I get the sense that people don't seem to care anymore. I think they care. I think, unfortunately, they're getting disheartened. Uh, I think they look at different party policies and different platforms, and they start wondering, is there any hope? Like, why bother fretting about this? Mm -hmm. And they get disheartened. And then there's also the element of debt, right, that comes into spending. So a lot of folks uh, in Canada, especially here in the Lower Mainland, they're in deep personal debt. There is a lot of debt being carried Mm -hmm. by individuals. And so I think, mentally, that kind of translates into higher tolerance for that among government. Mm -hmm. And we understand that. We know why. It's a psychological thing. But we have to pay that. And right now we've got rock-bottom interest rates. What happens if that starts going up? And so right now we're dealing with inflation. Um, 
We hope we don't see it hit 4%, but some analysts are warning that we could. Yeah, food and already is, I think, uh, as far as groceries, yeah. And for so for folks who don't understand, like that's a weird word, inflation basically hmm. means that that percentage is how much more you're paying. It's almost like a hidden 4% tax or a 4% less ability to afford stuff. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in the 70s where you had not only double-digit inflation, you also had, um, you you know, interest rates at, well, at one point, 23% or something in the early 80s. Yeah, I was, I was, I'm a 70s kid too. And I remember my parents fretting over how to pay the mortgage and the mortgage rate was over 20%. And so we were really in tough. I remember there was an old anecdote that my family used to say is uh, you, you keep working and paying down your mortgage. And after 10 years, you own the doorknob, something like that (laughs) on your house. And so right now we're in a better situation. Yeah, when it comes to interest, but we've been spending like a drunken frat party. (laughs) And we need to have some discipline now. We well, need to ask these questions. You know, and I, you, I think I've always been very vocal about this too. But the, one of the things the NDP talks is talking about is, um, a, you know, flat tax or a 50, 15% tax, that kind of – this is not new. But if you want to control government spending, maybe you need to make taxing more predictable, more flat so that mm. the spending becomes flat. What is the problem with that? Well – it depends, right? They, they, I find they often go after more of the low-hanging fruit on tax the rich, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, let's have a wealth tax. Let's do this and that. Mm-hmm. Our issue, again, is at the rate of spending. At the rate of spending, most of those wealth taxes would be gone through in like four days. Like That's how fast they're spending that mm-hmm. money. And so that's more of our concern here right now mm-hmm. is that we need to turn off that big spending tap and then turn around and look at the mess with our taxes. Um, when it comes to flat taxes, you know, that's more something that, you know, really hardcore economists like looking at. Uh, some folks can argue that it's more fair, more of a level playing field, et cetera. Um, we also need to warn that the NDP often, I haven't seen this proposed yet, but they've often talked about uh, universal basic income, things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we've seen that tried in other parts of the world, it hasn't worked out. And the, I, the original idea sounds good. It's almost a form of negative income tax. Mm-hmm. So when you make up to a certain amount of money, you don't pay tax. Fine. You make over that amount of money, then you start paying tax. So right. that's the idea of a negative income tax. But what our friends on the left often like to do is they like to promote this idea of universal basic income, but keep everything else. <laughs> it wouldn't it wouldn't eliminate ah. EI and disability. Right, and so you're double issues. dipping, basically. Exactly. Yeah. The original gotta, idea of a negative income tax was that it would replace right. the Right, if you had to reform, truly reform the taxation system, for sure. Absolutely, and we need to do that. Our tax code is ridiculous. It is so complex. It is so... Um, difficult to navigate that most people can't understand it. And that's just not right. Like you'll put, you'll put, you'll put accountants right. out of business, though, Chris. Well, we want, we want to make sure we have accountants in business, but it shouldn't be so difficult that the average intelligent person <laughs> cannot for the life of them understand their taxes that they pay. That's just not, that's plain not democratic. So we definitely need to clear up our tax code. And, for example, with this house flipping thing, that mm-hmm. just makes it more complicated again because it's like, okay, you have to live in your house for at least a year, but if you have to sell for death, loss of employment, a sudden move, something mm-hmm. like that. Oh, could you just It also pushes the- it underground, too. I think people think, okay, I won't sell my house publicly. I'll, you know, I'll shift, so I'll pay, have somebody pay me high rent. or they'll, mm-hmm. It creates a black market of, of uh, how do people hide stuff when they have to do too many taxes. Exactly. And there's always ways for people who are smart enough to shift their money around. Mm-hmm. And again, it won't, it won't help the housing issue. We need more mm-hmm. supply built. Like, we need more physical homes being built in Canada. 
Canada, especially here in BC, and going after people who, you know, buy a house, renovate it. A lot of people don't want to bother renovating their own house and then improve it and then sell it. It just seems to be nibbling around the edges unnecessarily. Mm -hmm. One of the elections, of course, is goodies, all the goodies. One of the goodies that the two parties have now talked about for sure is a $10 daycare, which is, this is not new. We've heard this before. Is this even possible? The cost for this would be huge. It doesn't even make sense. There's no incentive. It, it, it's already failed pretty much here in BC, hasn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, it's a great question, and I encourage anybody who thinks that this is an easy and simple solution to take an actual look at the English language, or French if you speak French, of the experience in Quebec. Mm-hmm. And so they get the nice little headline of how many dollar a day daycare that it's at when I think it started at five, goodness sake, um, and now it's a bit higher. Mm-hmm. They've got a waiting list, like a mile long. Like some of these kids will have their driver's licenses before <laughs> they'll be able to get in. And in the same way that it was determined that access to a waiting list is not access to health care, right. same deal. Access to a daycare waiting list when you've got your two-year-old and you need to get to work does not help. You need actual access to care. And so that's where we would say, yeah, it should be up to the guardians, the caregivers, and the parents. We live complicated lives. Some people do shifts with their spouses, Mm -hmm. where one's working nights, the other one's working days. Sometimes they get grandma to watch them, neighbor. Mm -hmm. You should just free up their own money so they can choose what to do with it. Whereas this cookie-cutter idea... That just looks expensive and like it would take a long time to set up. I I remember when the Dryden report came out. I think that was 20 years ago. Oh, my God. Like they're literally done their driver's license by now. They're they're in university and college. I think one of my kids is still on a waiting list, some daycare somewhere. And then (laughs) my youngest is 13 now. George Affleck in for uh, Jill Bennett today, and Chris Sims is my guest. She's a BC director from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. We're taking your call, 604-280-9898, asking the question about whether you think you're being taxed to death and whether or not this election campaign is an opportunity to get to get it right this time. We've got uh, Reg from Vancouver. Go ahead. Uh, oh, hi, George and Chris. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, what bothers me is I don't mind paying my, my fair share, but I'm I'm very disappointed when there's no fiscal responsibility you have 400 million a day and they keep coming after us clawing back money and now i'm really afraid about this capital gains on our on our mm-hmm. principal residence because to me it's going to start low and then they're going to just keep creeping up the percentage keeping creeping it up until a point where they're going to completely choke us off from our savings and our future what can we do about it? Thanks, Reg. Yeah, Chris, you kind of touched on that. And that's the thing. There's, when you add a new tax, they don't, they don't go away. No, they don't, re- they don't replace it with uh, an old one. They don't yeah. get rid of an old one, uh, as they did in, in different administrations. I think Reagan tried doing something like that, but it was with regulations. So for every huh. one regulation, his rule was you had to get rid of two, apparently, when he was uh, governor. Didn't Council. Gordon Campbell try that in B.C. too? Yeah, you know, and it's, you know, it's a good idea for cutting red tape, like yeah. we were talking about earlier, and it's a good, good method. But he's absolutely right to be concerned about the idea mm-hmm. of capital gains, and people keep trying to poo-poo this. Well, we think this anti-flipping tax is, is the foot in the door, yeah. because that is dealing with your primary residence. And I need to stress, we've already spent quarter million dollars, $250,000 studying this thing hmm. through CMHC with a group out of UBC, which in turn supports a tax on the sale of your primary residence. They've already done the math. They think that they can take in $7 billion Whoa. a year. And if, if they're not going to do this, then why do they ask you if you've sold your home, your primary residence on your tax forms? Yep. Like, are they just writing a book? Are they curious? <laughs> All right, I got more calls. Rob from Mission, go ahead. Yeah, hi. So, uh, both, I kind of have like a two part. All right, go for it, real points, quick. But 
Okay. Uh, so the first one. Uh, oh, we lost you. We can barely hear you. You're covering your mic, I think. Sorry, we lost your your signal there. Sorry about that. Call in from Deep Cove. Go ahead. Hi. Um, so when they introduced the GST, uh, I understood that was a temporary <laughs> thing to make the debt go away. Yeah. But that's 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 not my point because obviously that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. But um, like, so what happens to all the massive lottery? revenue mm-hmm. and i also understood that when marijuana was made legal that that yeah. would be a massive the cash, cash cow government. thanks so calling what, yeah. the, what? thanks calling yeah that's true the cash cow of uh, of lotteries and marijuana didn't uh, well the, ca- the lotteries are a cash cow aren't they chris well it depends on how you slice it and which jurisdiction you're looking at but on the marijuana thing yeah they were banking hard on mm-hmm. getting a lot of tax money happen. in for that the issue here maybe they will eventually you know maybe we'll get to the point where you know government controlled stores are selling you know valuable enough cannabis that people choose that over their their current private dealer so to right. speak so we'll be curious and again yeah. but they can come up with all these new cockamamie taxes and ideas for for revenue streams as they say they have a spending problem yep. they need to rein in the spending problem first all right chris we got to go thanks very much for joining me today Thank you. And I just wanted to stress um, the folks over at the Fraser Institute pointed out that we pay more in taxes than our food, clothing and housing combined.